Yeah, English 256. Now we're recording. Okay, Thomas King, uh, fourth chapter. Um, I hope everybody's got the book. If you haven't, just email me uh, individually, separately, if you've tried to be keeping along, but you've missed the last one because of it. Uh, because you missed the last one because of um, not having the book or something, please email me. I actually have a PDF of chapter five. So if you don't have the book or it didn't come through, whatever, however. I mean, you guys wrote posts, so I, I don't suspect that that's the case for most of you. But um, if you don't have the book, I guess people listening on the recording too, I have a PDF of chapter five that I can send along to. Okay, so I want to start kind of with a strange question. Um, I love the forum. People are killing the forum. It's fucking amazing. It's incredible. It's wonderful stuff going on in the forum. But I want to start with a strange question. Um, I don't know if this is still kind of operative for all of you, your like generation. Ooh, something's happening. They're reaching out to us. This, this screen, for people listening in on the recording, the screen has just gone blue. We're trying to get a tech in here. Something's happening. Um, maybe they're listening. Uh, so, I don't know if this is still operative for, for your generation, right? But like when I was growing up, and I think it's still the case for you guys, this is kind of silly to say. But when I was growing up, um, an interjection that we would often use, or like a comment that we would often make to one another, not like very often, but on occasion, we would say, word. Word, right? right? Like, what is, like, uh, word as in, like, question, or word as in a declaration, right? People still say that? Like, word, not all the time, right? It's probably not something that's, like, you, you say to your mom or dad or something, but in common parlance, you use that as an interrogative or a declaration. What does it mean when we say word? Yeah, like, yeah. It means, yeah, in what sense? Like, not just, like, um... I agree. Yes, right? It, it, it signifies confirmation, acceptance, agreement, okay, as a declaration, as a statement. What about as an interrogative? Word? Oh, word? What does that mean? What does that signify? Like, when you, when you, exp Ooh, nice. when you express that? It's like a questioning, like, you're almost put back by what they said, or you don't believe them, it's like a second take. Right, and so what you're asking is, is that correct? That is to say, like, is it real? Is it true? Like, oh, word? Like, is that actually the case? Okay. So this is a silly comment. I'm going to sign in as we go. But, um, no, don't go away. Um, I'm going to sign in as we go here. But the kind of, the point that I'm trying to get to is that even in kind of contemporary parlance, even in the slang that we use to express ourselves, this idea, word, right, the word, word, comes to represent what? In both of those cases, in the declarative case and in the interrogative case, the word, word, represents what for us? Something like authority, something like correctness, right? If we say, oh, word, as a question, we're basically saying, is that correct, is that true, is that right? right? If we say word as a declaration, we're saying like, yeah, I agree, I accept. Great, awesome, cool, affirmation, right? So, okay, this is the kind of slang that we use in, in some contemporary context. And what I'm trying to do is connect that to the chapter today. A lot of you guys wrote on the forum about this very idea that a lot of what's happening in this chapter today is about the division between oral expression, spoken thought, spoken expression, and the written word, right? What does King, as a means of kind of going into this discussion that I want to have around these ideas, what does King say about the difference between oral expression and written expression? Yeah. It kind of explains it like writ throughout history, 
like written expression has almost more authentication to it. Yeah. It's more finished. But then he goes on and explains that statistically they're the same. Like you get the same impact as reading it or listening to it. So he almost levels it out. So throughout history he talks about written and like big libraries and stuff and then there's the, the library in Tenochtitlan. Yeah, yep. down in Mesoamerica that had both the oral and the written side by side. Right. And ultimately it didn't last, but Right. The idea being so that that last point is really good too, right? The idea that like that library in, in Mexico City, right, among the Aztecs, was this library that really gave us evidence for the fact that native people had written language. They had written expression. But it burned down, which allowed colonial populations, which allowed settler populations, I think I think we figured it out. Which allowed settler populations to express this false stereotype about Native American groups, which was what? This false idea about Native American groups. Savages and Yeah, it happened. I don't know if you guys did something on your end, but yeah. yeah. Cool, yeah, it worked out. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Like savages and illiterate because they didn't have a written language. Exactly. The second part is where we want to start, right? This stereotype. We've been talking throughout the course of this entire book about like the idea of the Indian, the Indian, as opposed to actually existing Indians, right? King is talking about, on one level about the stereotype, about the expectation that we have about Native American people, as opposed to the reality. One thing that we haven't really talked about yet, prior to this class, about one of the expectations around the Indian, around that stereotype, is that the expectation, the stereotype we have around Native American populations historically is that they did not write. That is to say, they did not have written expressive practices or traditions. Right? That idea was used in the service of Tucker, as you're saying, identifying, establishing, or characterizing Native American populations as savage or inferior. Right? So why would written expression be held as, as it is in our slang with the word word, why would written expression be held as more authentic? Mm, culturally superior. Than oral expression. Now. It's looked at like more civilized as compared to oral uh, stories. Why? What about what? What characteristics of written expression? That's totally right. I think just like writing in general is just like looked at as uh, I don't know, like it's a little more like it's more trustworthy, I guess. Yeah. Why? Yes. Because like it's written down. Like when you tell a story, you can change it up every time, like in a different way. Yeah. 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 yeah so there's there's a um, tangibility. Yeah, there's a tangibility to writing, but when you start to write, right, something is written down, that's forever, right? These are, again, we're, wor we're working in abstractions, like clearly you can write something in pencil and erase it and it's gone. But we're talking about like big abstract ideas. Yeah, go ahead. Also, like writing's more like educational than just speaking, I guess. According to the expectation that we have, uh -huh. writing is something that's certainly more formal, right? It has a close, like you, you come to class having read writing. The things that I'm asking for you are all writing, right? I'm not asking you to, we're speaking in class, but this is a much more informal context than like you write a paper, you write on the forum, you read writing prior to class, all of these things. Okay, so yeah, writing does have this sense of like, um, uh, like superiority in terms of its educational value, right? 
But it also has a sense of superiority. Again, we're talking in abstractions, right? We, we bring out these expectations and these stereotypes in order to question them in a minute, but we have to establish the expectation on a stereotype before we can question them, right? So writing has a kind of um, close connection to uh, education, a kind of more civilized mode of discourse than the oral mode of discourse. But also writing is seen as superior because it's permanent, right, in the abstract. Writing is a permanent way of communicating. Now, if you can communicate through permanent means, right, you write something down, and it doesn't, as if you were speaking it, just vanish into thin air, never to be heard again. Right, again, we're speaking in abstractions, like I'm literally recording the class, so clearly speaking doesn't vanish into thin air, but like, it's abstractions, right? When you write something down, the fact that it's permanent, what does that allow you to do? It's like, as a culture, as a society, as a civilization, this is actually a crazy, huge, fucking massive idea. Like, what does the introduction of the written word allow a culture or a society or a civilization to do? Yeah. Can you go back and reference it? Yes, what does that mean? <laughs> like, this is huge. What does that mean? That you can go back to something and reference something that you've written before. So, like, for documentation, like, if you write it down and then something happens in the future, you can look back and say, all right, we set a precedent here. Yeah. And then it sort of sets like a, a guideline throughout time. Okay, so if we're talking about like laws, the fact that you can write them down does that. What about what else could we laws? Laws, yeah, we'll say more. Like why is why would it be important to write down laws? Um to avoid conflict in the future. Right, to avoid the appearance of impropriety around like shifting senses of values or shifting senses of justice. Absolutely, right? That's one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean like every religion is based off of writing, pretty much. In the Bible Western religions, yeah. yeah, yeah, Western religions, right? Yeah, we, we trace, I mean, <laughs> the Bible's a great example. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God. Right, like, the Word is such an important thing, right? The Word. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God. Right? So yeah, we trace all our kind of Western faith traditions back, in many respects, to written texts, right? I, I mean, both of these examples, like law and faith, are part of a bigger idea, right, is that when we have a written tradition, when we have something that we document, we can write it down, and then later on we can reference it. The idea, again, the, the kind of abstraction, the idea here, is that if you have writing, you can have history. Without writing, you can't have history. Anybody want to talk through that? Why, couldn't you, why can't you have history, capital H history, understood properly, if you don't have the written word? Because yeah. history is like based on a bunch of dates and like wars and uh, big events, and if you're if you don't have writing to prove that it actually happened, then you're not reliable. Right. If you don't have writing to document what's occurred in the past, how can you trust that your historical narrative is actually what occurred? Right. So as we go through like the first couple of centuries of colonization of these interactions between settlers and indigenous peoples, settlers mistakenly believe that native communities, that native populations are solely oral populations. And what that mistaken belief allows them to do is to say, indigenous peoples don't really have history. They don't really know where they came from and who they are, right? Because they don't have anything written down, right? We can trace our ancestry and the history of our country back generations and millennia, native people, they don't have those archives. They don't have those set, stable, permanent archives. Right? 
What do you think that allows settler populations to do in history or kind of even today? Like, yeah. You think they're superior so they can just take their land? It like yeah. justifies their actions in their mind? Yeah. So it gives a sense of superiority, but that sense of superiority has real consequences, right? Real effects. And part of those effects are, yeah, it acts as a justification for, on one hand, the dispossession of land, right? If you don't have title, my car just died this past week. Right? Yeah. Engine. Gave out. Boom. Done. Over. Right? So I'm like calling around to scrap yards, like junk yards and stuff. To like just have them towed away and give me a couple of bucks. Okay? And every time I call, what do they ask me for? Anybody have an experience with this? What's the one thing they need to take away your car? The title. The title, right? That written document that provides proof of your historical ownership of the vehicle that you want to give away. Absent the title, without the title, there's no proof, right? I've been driving this car for 11 years. I could have talked to a million people about my Toyota Camry. If I don't have that piece of written documentation, according to the law, right, according to society, I may as well not own that car. That's why having that piece of paper is so important. It establishes that history, right? So when you know, settler populations and native populations encounter one another, and settler populations say, hey, you don't have like documents of land rights, you don't have like treaties, you don't have contracts, at least that we can see, that we know how to interpret, huh, they must really not have much of a conception of private property or private ownership, which means that we can kind of just take what we need to take, right? As opposed to if they had documented title of something, that would have to be respected, right? So what the absence of written expressions among indigenous populations does is, to go back to Tucker's point, it provides justification for things like land dispossession. And it continues to, by the way, right? In like courts of justice even today, oral narratives like native people coming into western courts and saying, hey, my family has a story about this land that goes back five generations or two centuries, that's not held as clear, verifiable proof of anything. Why? There's actually like a legal technical term for something that you hear, but you don't have documentation for that's not been recorded, either written or like actually recorded as audio. Anybody know that term? Hearsay. Hearsay, right? So like, it's literally in our laws inadmissible, just speaking. Somebody speaking to somebody else, it's hearsay. It's inadmissible as evidence. So this is not just a historical thing. It's actually also really, really important for the present day as it concerns like native people asking for what we would call land redress, right? Getting land back into their possession. So this idea that writing is stable, permanent, authoritative has been has had profound consequences on native people. Right? It's allowed settlers to feel as if they are superior, and then that superiority has real consequences. Well, let's take the other side of it. Why are oral expressive practices seen, again in the abstract, why are oral expressive practices seen as inferior? What about them makes them inferior? I feel like they're less, they're almost less personal. So like if someone writes something down, you can take your own spin on it, you can take your own interpretation on it, versus, so like if you're reading a book, then a movie, for example, yeah. so you, develop a character and a plot and everything in your mind, yeah. 
But then if you watch the movie and it's not what you imagine, it's just completely different. So oral, it doesn't really have that first, it, it has aspects of personalization, but it's kind of like their narrative. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, sweet. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I want to slightly twist this because in a, in a kind of general way, right, what we would say is that oral discourse, oral expressive practices are actually more personal. But I actually think that's what you're saying. I just want to get there. Why would we think that oral discourses or oral expressions are more personal to the person who's doing the telling? Because they're the ones that remember it. It's their, their view of what happened. Right. That's one part of it, is that it's only theirs, right? They haven't written it down and shared it as an authoritative story. So it's personal to them. And then what else? <clears throat> I feel like, <clears throat> sorry, you can see, like, kind of, like, the person's body language when they're telling it to you and, like, their past, like, how they feel about it. Meanwhile, when you write it, like, you have no idea. Like, it's, you can't read their body language from something that's written. Precisely. This is the other reason why, traditionally speaking, we understand oral discourse to be more personal, more intimate. It's because in order to hear it, in order to have it be expressed to you, you have to be there. Right? Again, we're not talking about like modern technology. We're talking in abstract philosophical terms. Right? You have to be there with that person. You see their tone. You see what they're doing. You see the excitement in whatever. Like, you see their sadness, whatever, right? So, in order to, like, have an oral expression to understand somebody who's speaking to you, you have to be intimately close to them, right? As opposed to writing, which is characterized by its ability to travel long distances where messages can be sent and received across thousands of miles. So what happens with writing is it distances the, the message from the sender of the you can't have that in oral discourse. You can't distance the message from the sender of the message. If you distance the message from the sender of the message, and this goes back to Tucker's point, if you distance the message from the sender of the message, what happens to the message? Anybody played the game, the telephone game? The message becomes distorted. Yeah. It doesn't just have to be in kind of a silly way that we understand with the telephone game, like you start with like a legitimate phrase and then you know, you say it to your two-year-old and it ends up being like poopy face or something like that. That's not necessarily all that it has to be. It can just be slight variations, slight changes on a theme, right? Rhythms and repetitions, but with differences, right? That's what happens with oral stories as they're told and retold and retold and retold and retold and never written down, right? So there's no authoritative original. Right? Because nothing's ever been written down. So as the story changes, subtle variations occur, and that's what the new story is. Think about that idea. The story continues to change. Subtle variations occur, but there's a pattern that's laid down by the original. There's riffs on it, slight changes in the details, but at its foundation, it's the same. What might that remind you of? from this book. Slight changes, slight subtle variations, but generally speaking, it's the same. Yeah. Um, when he was, <clears throat> sorry, when he said that he was, uh, he went from like a passionate um, speaker on behalf of his people to a uh, spokesperson. Yeah, what do you mean by that? How is that like a slight variation? Um, I guess he wasn't, the emotional component of, um, wasn't there that 
originally was there because he became so like he's still what he was uh, talking about. Good. So that personal experience of King saying like, "Oh, I'm telling the story over and over and over again." By the time the you know fiftieth time, it is no longer kind of he's no longer emotionally invested in the story. He becomes a spokesperson. Yeah, that's a really good kind of example of that from his personal history. What about in the structure of the book? How the chapters are set up? A foundational story that stays the same, but there are riffs on it. A bunch of people talked about it on the post, so I know that like basically at this point I'm just asking you to read my mind. It's the beginning of every chapter and the end of every chapter, right? We've all been talking about that, right? Jennifer mentioned that in a post. A couple of other people mentioned that in a post, right? This idea, why is he starting every chapter the same way, right? I think, Anthony, you mentioned this a little bit. Like, Anthony was talking about, like, it's a matter of emphasis, right? But it's also what King, I suggest to you, what King is trying to do is he's trying to approximate the oral, expressive, or discursive mode in writing, right? He's giving you the same story, but almost as if it's through a game of telephone, a slight change, a slight variation, the beginning and at the end. Why would King want to do that? Why would King want to write, of course, but also try, as much as possible, to preserve that oral mode? Why would that be important to him? Just speculate. I mean, I mean He's a Native American man, right? He's talking about the importance of oral stories. Why would he want to preserve that oral mode of discourse in his writing? Because in his culture, oral is it's such a significant part of where he came from. So the way he interprets stories are like orally, and he felt like he got stuff out of them. So he wants to give that to the readers and give that to other people. Great, yeah. Yeah. So in the absence of being able to like actually be here with us and tell us the story in an intimate, personalized setting, what he's trying to do through the book, right? The book can be incredibly distancing as a material artifact. Like you pick up a book, you don't know anything about the author. You might know literally nothing about the author if they don't tell you anything about them. It's a very distancing thing. So when he repeats himself over and over again with slight variations, what he's trying to do is approximate that oral storytelling practice. He's trying to bring you in, just like with his personal anecdotes, just like with the informal tone that we've talk, been talking about, another kind of narrative or structural strategy that he's taking to bring us in as readers is to approximate that oral mode, right? To basically um, put at the beginning of every chapter the, something like the telephone game, right? It starts in one city with one type of person asking a question, and then we get a hard break to the next paragraph, and then he quotes a Native American author. Every chapter starts the same way. But the person who's asking the question about the turtles changes, the place changes, and the quote from the Native American author changes, right? So we have this kind of like enduring structure that is getting riffed on over and over and over again. So what I'm going to, again, what I'm suggesting to you, and this is really important for how the class moves forward, what I'm suggesting to you is that in these pieces of Native American writing, not only king, kings, but everything we're going to read, you're going to find traces of, quote-unquote, the oral, right? Either through repetition with a difference or through the informality of the tone, to go back all the way to Matt's point about how, like, the writing is kind of very formal. Andrea, who takes the class online but is in this group, also talked about that, right? She said that when King is talking about writing, right, he uses very formal and stilted language. 
when he's talking about oral expression, he actually uses very informal and colloquial kind of everyday language. Right? So you can see the connection between the form and the content there. That happens not just in King, that actually happens in most native literature, is that native authors are trying to approximate the oral mode in writing. Okay? Why would they want both? Right? We want to preserve the oral, but we also want to uh, write as well. Why would we want both? King actually gives us one answer, but there's a bunch of them. Why do native authors write? What does it allow them to do for their audience? A couple people mentioned this. What does it allow? Anybody remember what King says? He says that what Native American writing allows Native authors to do is to bring those stories that wouldn't otherwise be available to non-Native audiences. It allows them to be brought to non-Native audiences, right? Because that writing, those ideas, those stories can now travel distances. They can be separated from the speaker. So what it allows Native authors to do is kind of like bring people together to establish a collective, to form a community across difference. Right? That's one thing for King that writing does. That's why he writes. Right? So the oral has its place, but so does the written. Right? Does that all make sense? I can't stress to you enough, I literally can't stress to you enough, historically, how much real political, legal, socio-political consequence has come from the belief, mistaken though it is, that indigenous peoples do not write. It has structured so much of our historical understanding of what Native American people are, what they believe, right? So much of it, right? Because if you are a solely oral culture, what that means again is that you don't have history, you don't have religion in the sense that we, in a, in a Western context, understand religion, right? You don't have private property ownership. You don't have laws in the same way that people in the West understand laws. You, have, you can't have any of that, so it said, without writing. Right? Because writing provides that authoritative, stable, and static marker of a connection to one's past. Whereas oral expressions are evanescent. They fly away, they vanish. You utter them, and then they're gone, right? You can't ever grasp that oral expression and make sure it's the same across time. Profound implications for how we understand Native American people. Questions on that? Huge deal. Huge idea, right? Huge idea. Okay, next thing to say about that, then, is that, like, King gestures toward this, but he doesn't really make too much uh, row of it. He doesn't say too much about it, but it actually is the case that indigenous communities in North America prior to colonization and much long after colonization and still today have their own written traditions, right? They actually do have written expressive practices. So this idea from the Indian that we understand Indian people to not have writing, to only be oral, is actually not true. It's never been true, right? So I want to give you just a couple of examples of like Native American writing, right? It's not the type of writing that you maybe understand to be writing, but we're gonna talk about what they are all the same. Actually, I have a little sheet to hand out about this. The top of this uh, handout, which I will post online for those of you listening at home, is just two quotes from King. It's the first two assumptions about the idea of Native cultures being oral. 
And then on the bottom is a list of the Native American writing systems that I'm going to go over right now. Okay, so I just want to go over these just kind of for the hell of it, to give you a sense, to give you a flavor of the types of writing systems that were available to Native American communities prior to um, settler populations, right? Prior to exploration, prior to encounter. So I'm going to shut off one of these lights. All right, so the first one here is probably the one that we would most clearly associate with something like writing, and this is a Mayan script, right? So each one of these symbols means a particular idea or word, right? So Mayan scripts are composed of logograms is on the sheet, right? And these words don't really matter. I'm just giving you a sense of what's going on here. Mayan words are composed of, or a script is composed of logograms and phonograms, so it means Symbols that represent words and symbols that represent sounds. So these kind of red letters are sounds, and these blue letters are words. And you put those two things together, and then you have a writing system that the Mayans, which are an indigenous people of Central and South America, you have the, their writing system. Right? Is this writing, from your definition, like what is writing? Is this writing? Yeah. Yeah, why? It's taking like, symbols and putting meaning to them. Okay. So they're different symbols than what we use, but they're still symbols nonetheless. Good, yeah. So we usually associate writing, right, from the West in a very kind of traditional definition. We think of writing as um, symbols, you know, like visual images that approximate sounds, basically, right? When we think about alphabetic writing, we think about each letter in the alphabet representing what's called a phoneme, which is a small, discrete unit of speech, right? That's what we usually think of as writing. Writing is the inscribed visual representation of the sounds we make to express ourselves, okay? So in some sense, this does really align with that traditional notion of writing, right? Because there are sounds. But not entirely, too, because there are also symbols that represent, you know, words, not just sounds, right? So, that's a little bit different, but still pretty much what we would think of as writing. And in fact, if you are working with a really traditional definition of writing, this Mayan script is like the only writing system in North America prior to colonization. Like if you're working with a really traditional conception of writing. Okay. But there are other written expressions in North America prior to colonization, right? There's actually a bunch of them. The Anishinaabe are an indigenous group that's native to the um, uh, eastern and central Great Lakes. Okay, another word for the Anishinaabe is the Ojibwe. Another word is the Chippewa. You might be familiar with these words. The Ottawa, right? All of these are Anishinaabe people. Okay? So these are pictograms and ideograms where you have symbols that represent ideas, right? So pictograms are symbols that represent basically what you see, right? So you have like a fish here that represents a fish. But then you also have like a symbol that represents something intangible, like that thing that kind of looks like a bullseye with a stick coming out of the bottom of it. Right? So they don't really resemble what they represent, but 
it might be a writing system. Is it? Does this kind of qualify as writing in a traditional Western definition? Probably not. But we might think of it as writing why. What's that really important characteristic of writing? It's like permanence. Yeah. There's permanence, right? Presumably there are people, and there are, who know how to read this. So this is an archive of something, right? It could be laws. It could be faith. It could be religion. It could be history, right? If you have the ability, the competencies to read this, this is evidence of some historical documentation of something. So in that respect, yeah, in many cases, like, we can think of this as writing. This is another example. Again, I'm just going through these just to give you kind of rundown of the varied ways that this idea that Native people didn't have writing is just kind of false, right? It's part of what King calls the idea of the Indian, right? It's not actually true, and it never has been. This is a um, bear skin that's been tanned, and then you see that there are images that are um, drawn onto the hide in a kind of counterclockwise circular pattern. It starts from the center and radiates out to the um, outside of the hide in a circular pattern. Um, does anybody know what this is? It's called a winter count. Does anybody, anybody remember that? It's actually something like a written history, almost like a calendar or something. Every single image that you see, right, so like this red image here, or all of these red dots surrounded by this kind of horseshoe shape, every single image represents the most important thing according to the Lakota, which are a Plains indigenous tribe, right? Another name for the Lakota is the Sioux. That image, each one of those images, represents the most important thing that happened to the Lakota that year. Okay. So each one of those images represents one thing that happened to the Lakota that year, and whoever made this winter count decided that that was the most important thing that happened to those people that year. So in this sense, this is very much like a recorded history. Right? This provides the Lakota with an account of their past. It's really interesting to know, and this is just kind of an aside, right? Like um, when the Lakota um, are decimated at the closing of the frontier in 1890 in the, in the um, Battle of Wounded Knee, right? Or when the Lakota and the Dakota defeat Custer in Custer's long last stand, right? At uh, Standing Rock, right? Um, those events are actually not represented on the winter counts. So for the Lakota, those events weren't the most important events of the year, even though like Custer's Last Stand or Wounded Knee have become, even for like Western Americans, even for settlers, they've become really important historical touchstones for conflicts between settlers and indigenous people. For the Lakota, those weren't the most important things that year. Yeah. Um, is that supposed to be a, a meteor right in the top left corner? A what in the battle corner? Is that like a meteor? Or is that yeah, just... it is. <coughs> yep. It's an, yeah, it's an ast astronomical event. Uh, astrological? No, astro astronomical. Right? Astrological is like, what's your sign? Oh, <laughs> I'm an Aries. Uh, rising, setting, I don't know. Is that a... Yeah, it's a meteor. Yeah. They're making observations about, you know, space objects and stuff, for sure. 
Um, I believe that the one with the red dots is like the introduction of the smallpox epidemic, speaking to our times. Viral diseases, right? Like, so this event, one, one image represents one event, and that's taken to be something like the most important event of the year. So it's a recording of history. Again, it's not like writing, like we understand it, like alphabetic writing, where each letter represents a sound that we make in an expression, right? But it is writing in a particular way. So this gives the lie. I guess all these things are kind of pointing to the idea that this gives the lie to the idea that indigenous people prior to colonization don't have a sense of themselves as historical beings. They clearly do. They have historical narratives. The problem is that the people who come, you know, in the 15th century onto the 19th and 20th century, they can't read the writing that they find. So they don't classify it as such. Instead, it's classified as art, you know, not as right, something like that. All right, what else? Uh, this is slide four for those following along. This is uh, Incan, this is a Kipu. Uh, this is a really weird one. So the Incas are an indigenous group of South America and like present day Chile, right? Chile. Uh, anybody have any familiar, familiar, familiarity with Kipus? Kipus are strange, man. Okay, so this is basically like a woven, um, kind of looks like you should wear it as a necklace or something really kind of cool, but it's actually not. So if you look at the different strands, you can see that they're knotted in different places, that there are different colors every once in a while too. Um, this is actually used to collect taxes and to count people in an Incan village. This is like an accounting or mathematical device. So every knot means something. Every different colored strand means something, and it's for accounting about what happens in a society, right? How many people are there? Who has paid the taxes? What dues have come in, right? Considerations of trade and import and export, right? All of these things you can read from this document if you are able to. This one is probably the furthest afield from what we would consider writing, right? But what it shows you is that, again, pre-colonization, indigenous peoples had a variety of ways to record elements of their society, historical, legal, religious, in ways that were more or less permanent, just like the written word, just like alphabetic words are. So yeah, every little strand means something different, every knot means something different, the placement of the knot on the strand means something different, all of these things uh, determine a variety of kind of like mathematical and accounting uh, practices for the Inca. This one might be familiar to folks, if you grew up uh, upstate. Where is he, you, you nodded, you familiar mm. with this? Yeah, it was one of those things in school yeah. You know, they made you make one from the bracelets and... Yeah. So, like, fourth grade? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you grew up in New York State, um, I don't know if they do this downstate. Do they? No, they don't do it downstate in Long Island. But if you grew up upstate in New York State, your, like, fourth grade history, uh, a portion of that is Native American history, and you learn about the Native American peoples who are local to where we are now, which are the Haudenosaunee, another name for the Haudenosaunee is the Iroquois. Right, and the Iroquois Confederacy is composed of the Mohawk and the Seneca and the Onondaga and the Cayuga and the Oneida and the Tuscarora. So if you've heard of any of those, 
This is where this comes from, wampum. These are carved shell beads, right? These are taken out of the insides of quahog shells. Actually, they're all mined and found in Long Island Sound. And in, what's the body of water between Long Island and Connecticut? Is that Long Island Sound? No, Long Island Sound is below Long Island. Come on, Long Island, right? Yeah, but geography is down. In any case, these shells are found in that area in the Northeast, and then via trade routes, they actually make it up to the Haudenosaunee in upstate New York. They are um, carved, and then they are strung on string, right? And they make patterns, okay? And these patterns, to go back to this idea of law, Cooper, that you were bringing up earlier, oftentimes these patterns are something equivalent to historical treaties, right? So if you see the top, belt here, that's um, a belt that actually signifies the coming together of all the various tribes that compose the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Right, so this belt is actually the historical record for the confederation of a bunch of different tribes. If you read this belt from left to right, what you see is, if you know how to read it, the first kind of rectangle or square all the way to the left is the Seneca, then the Cayuga, the Onondaga are in the center, they're called the keepers of the central fire, and at Onondaga is where the white tree of peace is planted. That's the white tree. To the right of the Onondaga, if you're going west to east across central New York, is the Oneida. And then all the way to the east, in like present day Albany and thereabouts, is the Mohawk. Right? So this is a recording of a political arrangement. It's a treaty. It's a coming together of different same with this one, but we'll leave that alone in the service or interest of time. That's another belt that records a political arrangement. This belt records a political arrangement between the Haudenosaunee and the settlers. The Haudenosaunee are traveling along this beaded purple road. The settlers are traveling along this beaded purple road. They're traveling in the same path. They're going down the same road, as it were, but they're never crossing into one another's boats or cars, however you want to think about it, right? The idea is that what it's documenting is a treaty relationship or a political arrangement based on mutual coexistence without interference, right? Again, this is recording a political arrangement. It's not like a treaty. It's not like a constitution, like we understand writing and history to be, but it's still doing something that we understand to be the province of writing. We have one more? Yeah. This last one is actually developed after colonization. This is the Cherokee syllabary. So whereas up above on this notice, you see that it's written in the alphabet. So the alphabet, each letter of an alphabet, records what's called a phoneme, like I said, one kind of discrete unit of sound, like ah. That's a phoneme, ah. In a syllabary, each one of these symbols records not a phoneme, a discrete unit of sound, but a syllable, right? So a longer unit of sound. Okay. So each one of these symbols records a syllable, and you put them together and you form words. So this was developed by the Cherokee in the 19th century. It's another written tradition among indigenous people. Okay. Cool, any thoughts about any of those? Again, I just kind of want to give you a rundown 
of these written traditions. The reason being is that, like I said, it's been so crucial, so critical to our understanding of the Indian, that, that imagined, stereotypical, expected notion of what an Indian person is, that Indian people are solely oral in their culture. They only have oral expressive practices. That allows us as settlers to say so many wrong things about Native American communities and about Native American history. What we don't realize and what King is bringing us to, right, is that all along Native people have been writing. Okay? And this is a really nice segue to the last point I want to make. All along Native people have been writing. So, when Native people write now, it's not some corruption of some past historical tradition. It's not like some new thing, and when they start to write, they've broken from their past. They can no longer access their historical culture. Right? No, Native people writing is completely consonant, completely aligned with, completely comfortable with, Native historical cultures and Native histories. Right? So this is a really important point that like people, students in Intro to American Indian Literature or Intro to American Indian History, they often run into this problem, is they start reading, writing by Native Americans, and by virtue of the Native American person writing, you immediately think, oh, this guy is not traditional. Like he's distanced from his tribe. Like he's been colonized, right? If he's writing, he must have already been colonized, right? Because writing is solely a Western practice. What I'm trying to show you is that's not true. So when you read something by a Native American person, even historically, you have to understand that that's not some like sellout corruption of their tradition or of their culture or of their society. That's something they've done all along. Just in, as King says, and Matt, as you brought up in your post, and I think Jennifer too, in new forms, right? That's all it is. It's just writing in a new form. It's not something radically new. It's not a corruption of something from previous. Cool? Yeah. yeah. I like this stuff. As you, I hope, can tell. Have a good one. Be in touch if you need. Stay safe. Be healthy. I hope to see you here next week.